remember when you first got your bob haircut that was all like tippy and cool. Which time? It, <laughs> no, the first time back in oh in, uh, well, in bet- right before ninth grade. Yeah. Yes, the first time, yeah. and when I had my glow up, some people were like, mm, <laughs> "Girls have short hair," and we were like, "No, girls definitely have cute bobs." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you're right. No, the, the bob without the bangs. That was when I donated my hair for Locks for Love in seventh grade. Yes. Yeah, because that was just the bob. That was when I started thinking about wearing anything other than XXL t-shirts with large sweatshirts over them so that the t-shirt poked out underneath, which I thought was a, a whole look. And it was not. And then uh, We've clearly come full circle because that is my current look. Yeah, where your tops go down to your knees and your pants flare out from the knee down, so you're just one big shape. Uh, I loved flare pants. You were tall enough to pull them off. That's the difference. I'm not convinced flare pants are wrong. I say that, but I am wearing the highest waist, skinniest jeans right now. Like, there is no flare. Oh, my God. With the quarantine weight I've put on, it's... Jeans and jeggings 20, or sorry, leggings and jeggings 24-7. I don't even think I own a solid pair of jeans that don't have a lot of stretch in them anymore. So Valerie told me once a long time ago, and it's been in my head, and for listener purposes, Valerie is Traces and my friend who is the queen of the animals. She just takes care of so many lovely animals. She's the best. Okay, so cool Val story. She posted a picture of one of her rats. And I responded on Instagram, oh, and on the picture, Valerie said, you know, something like, oh, she's so pudgy. And I responded by saying, don't call her pudgy. She's curvy. And Valerie came back and was like, Rowan, rats want to be pudgy. It means they're doing a good job as rats. They can be pudgy. (laughs) And that that rocked my world. somehow and so my quarantine lifestyle goal is to just be a rat just be a successful rat be a rat (laughs) can ask yourself am i a lady or am i a rat (laughs) i was on a happy hour with my boss and my coworkers yesterday and i was saying how the all the weight that i worked really hard to lose before quarantine is back and instead of trying to lose it, I was like, if it wants to be here, it can join the party. It can hang out. We're friends now. It clearly <laughs> wants to be here. Welcome so. to our quarantine party. Tracy, now that you can see this, look at my fancy microphone. It's so fancy. I, I love it. I'm very far away I'm a radio mine. caster from the 1950s. I don't know why. Do a transatlantic accent. <laughs> I, you know, the transatlantic, like, uh, Catherine Hepburn, see? <laughs> that, like... Yeah, say, say, am I a lady or am I a rat, but in a transatlantic accent. Am I a lady or am I a rat? That's just, like, Yay! the, I'm a newsman, <laughs> see? And, <laughs> the 23 skidoo on that one. Yeah, that's just, like, malarkey, just general malarkey accent. Mm-hmm. All right, um... Should we jump into it? All right, I'm ready. I'm I'm ready. Okay. Research-wise, I'm ready. Mentally, I'm ready. Emotionally, at the moment I am ready for not one single thing. <laughs> That's just my general state of being. So, welcome to the club. Welcome to quarantine. Are you a good rat or a good lady? <laughs> All right. 
Hi, I'm Rowan Hall, and I'm a good rat. (laughs) And I'm Tracy Harrison. And she's a good lady. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the Willing and Feeble podcast, where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. Today, we're going to be discussing two very famous flood myths. In fact, I can almost guarantee you've heard of both of these stories, but you probably don't know the whole truth behind them. To give a quick background, flood myths occur in many mythologies, religions, and stories from all over the world. Similar stories can be found in Abrahamic religions, Hinduism, Mesopotamian, Greek, Chinese, Norse, Irish, Mayan, Incan, Korean, Filipino, Polynesian, Native American, Musca and Kanyari Federation, Kwaya, Mbuti, Maasai, Mandan, and Yoruba people, Eskimo, and many, many, many other cultures. Far too many to name here, but I wanted to highlight how ubiquitous this myth is across the world. In these myths, the flood often, but not always, occurs as divine retribution against a civilization. Some stories draw parallels between the flood waters and the primeval waters that often appear in creation myths. If you remember our previous episode, you can see the parallels there. In many stories, there is a cultural hero who represents humanity's desire to keep living. Tracy, I think you already know this because I told you before. But in case you forgot, my flood myth today is Noah's Ark. It appears in the book of Genesis. It is a story of the Abrahamic religions, and it is in the Tanakh, or Jewish Bible. And there it goes by the name Te'avat Noah. I want to start off by saying, in my original script for this episode... I called this a Judeo-Christian myth. But I just learned today, mere hours ago, that phrase is actually a serious problem. My friend Daphne Olive from the Fathoms Deep podcast referred me to Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. I'm going to quote one of Rabbi Ruttenberg's tweets. Judeo-Christian first appeared in 1821 to talk about Jewish converts to Christianity, and then for the second time in 1829 to talk about churches that would observe some Jewish traditions in order to convert Jews. Further, this phrase completely erases Islam as an Abrahamic religion from the conversation. If I'm correct, I've actually used the phrase Judeo-Christian in a previous episode, so please know, I now know better. (laughs) We at the Willing and Fable podcast are always doing our best to be correct and inclusive. If we ever say something that is incorrect for a culture, practice, or identity, we would love for you to shoot us a message on our website, Twitter, or Instagram. To begin... Let's explore the history of, quote, ark myths, or God-sent floods with life-saving ships. For over a century, scholars have believed that the origin of this story goes back to the older Mesopotamian models. Currently, there are nine known incarnations of the Mesopotamian flood story, the oldest of which was inscribed in the Sumerian city of Nippur circa 16. 16- 100 BCE. 
Throughout the evolution of the story, from the first to the ninth Mesopotamian model, the lead gentleman's name changes a few times, including Utnapishtim, who appears in the Epic of Gilgamesh. The name of this epic poem might sound familiar, as it is often touted as, quote, the earliest surviving great work of literature and the second oldest religious text after the pyramid text. I love the epic of Gilgamesh. It's so interesting. It's so good. You know, I will say I am not the most familiar with the epic of Gilgamesh past the basics. Yeah, I studied it in college, and that's where I learned more about it. Well... Probably you're going to have to cover that one eventually. Yeah, I'd love to. So for those who are less familiar than Tracy, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Utnapishtim is tasked by the god Enki, who you might remember from Tracy's story about Tiamat, to create a giant ship called Preserver of Life to prepare for the flood that would wipe out all life. Among the evolving versions of this story, many scholars note that the Babylonian and Abrahamic arcs are very similar in shape and measure, but that the reasons for the gods or God to send the flood vary. But I don't want to give too much away before I tell the story. (laughs) For now, know that the version of today's story will most closely follow an Abrahamic telling. I want to say that while I personally... I'm not a Christian. I grew up in the primarily Christian culture that is the United States. This means that a lot of the information about Noah's Ark that I've found, I'm learning, is more accurate to a Christian form of the story. I'm going to do my best to be truer to the Jewish source material when I can, but I recognize that my work is probably imperfect. Like all the stories you'll hear me cover, I am still learning them. So as I said before, if you have more to teach me, I hope you will feel welcome to reach out. And that goes for both of us, for all stories that we tell. Please, please feel free to gently correct us if we're wrong. We want to learn and we want to grow and we want to have conversations that better us and you as our listeners. In this telling, I heavily quoted the translation of Genesis that I found because I specifically wanted to capture the language of the Abrahamic God when he speaks to Noah throughout the story. So without further ado, it was the year 1536 of creation and all is prosperity. Noah was a righteous, pure man in his generation. It was a time when mortal men lived for quite a while. In fact, in his 500th year, Noah was the father to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But the Lord, God of all creation, was growing tired of these men and women who populated the earth, filling the world with violence. Divine beings lay with human women, and men killed one another. So, God numbered the days of humans to 120 years. And then he watched and considered. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he made man on earth and it grieved him at his heart. 
And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping things and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah walked faithfully with God and found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord came to Noah and gave him specific instructions. So make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark, and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah listened intently. And God said, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made." It took Noah no less than a hundred and twenty years to make the ark, during which time the men around him might come to investigate and, on hearing Noah's story, have the opportunity to repent. But no repentance came. In the year 1656, the water came. Rain fell from the sky and water shot from the ground. Noah, his wife, his sons and their wives all entered the massive creation filled to the brim with all the animals of the earth. The Lord shut them into the ship, and the water came for forty days and forty nights. The rain fell so that the waters covered the tops of the trees, but still the boat held. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than fifteen cubits, and still Noah's boat held strong. Every creature left on land that held the breath of life perished, so that only those on Noah's ark remained. Even when the rain stopped, the waters which covered the earth churned for a hundred and fifty days. At this time, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, but they could not leave the ark, for there was nowhere to go. But God remembered Noah, and he sent winds, and the water receded, so that the ark might have hope of finding dry land. Noah opened a window of his faithful boat and released a raven into the skies, hoping that the creature might find dry land. But it flew back and forth, having nowhere in the watery world to rest its wings. 
Then he sent out a dove, but again the bird could find nowhere to land. He tried again with the dove. This time, when the bird returned, the creature held an olive branch in its beak. Surely there must be a healthy tree nearby sprouting from a bit of safe ground. So one more time, Noah sent out the dove. But now, the creature never returned. There was land waiting for him to find, with the happy dove resting in safety. In the year 1657, God said, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. Noah, in gratitude for his life, his family's life, and joy to God, built an altar. He sacrificed burnt offerings of the clean animals, and God, smelling the pleasant aroma, came to him. God made a covenant with Noah. I will not again curse the ground for any man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. The Lord gave to Noah and his family all the animals of the earth as food, so long as they did not drink their lifeblood. He established that no human being shall kill another, saying, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, and in the image of God has God made mankind. He charged Noah and his family to be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it, ensuring that never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said that any time man is unworthy, he would hang a rainbow in the clouds as a reminder of this covenant so that he might hold back his destructive thoughts from materializing. Now that Noah had reached soil, he planted a vineyard in his new home. He drank of his wine, falling naked and drunk within his tent. Ham and his son Canaan saw Noah naked, but did not cover him. But Noah's other sons, Shem and Japheth, took a garment, walked into the tent backwards, and covered their father so that they never saw his naked form. Noah awoke enraged to find that Ham and Canaan had seen his naked form and left him uncovered. He condemned Ham's son. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of the slaves. Will he be to his brothers? Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. This curse carried through the generations of his family, and so Noah left his mark long after his death at 950 years old, having saved the creatures of the world from flood and cursed his grandson. That was a lot. <laughs> that was a really good telling, though, and there was some stuff in there I'd never heard before. Yeah, so just right off the bat, I'm sure you and everyone else who is listening is saying, Rowan, what the hell is a cubit? <laughs> I was wondering. 
Well, I have the answer for you. It is an ancient measure of length approximately equal to the length of a forearm. It was typically about 18 inches or 44 centimeters, though there was a long cubit of about 21 inches or 52 centimeters. Okay. So my brain cannot now translate that knowledge of cubits into a visualization of what an arc would look like. But I will tell you, people have built life-size arcs. There is one in Kentucky that you can buy tickets to go see. I want to say it is the arc experience, but having never been to Kentucky, unfortunately, and having very little knowledge of the specifications of the arc until this point... I don't know much about it. Mm-hmm. All I know is I had a toy arc as a kid, and I liked playing with the little animals. Aw. <laughs> yeah, I had it. There was a picture in my grandmother's house. I think it was a needlepoint, actually, of you know animals going in two by two, and that is that is the extent mm-hmm. of my knowledge until today. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know about the rainbow. That's really interesting. And I like that it ties into the reason that we see rainbows. Yeah, it it is a really interesting element of the story that I, of course, having not previously known, but also is a really interesting dimension to the Abrahamic God in my brain that I hadn't really known before. Mm-hmm. So I want to start off by saying that in the world of ship-centric flood myths. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of different reasons that the gods have chosen to flood the world. To punish humanity because gods are winsome and changeable, because maybe floods are just the way of things in the world. But I think noting that the reason is a really interesting way into the story. I am going to read a particularly long quote. Okay. (laughs) It is from David C. Kramer. He is a professor of Talmud and rabbinics, as well as a librarian. I don't think there is any way I could have possibly said what he is about to say any better. So I'm going to read from his piece that he wrote for the Jewish Theology Seminary. But before I start, there are two things that I do not want you to miss, Tracy. Okay. The first is that he references the two names used for God in these chapters from the Mm -hmm. book of Genesis. You didn't hear them referenced in my story because I also learned today that at least one of those names is not meant to be said aloud, at least Mm -hmm. by me, for sure. (laughs) So when Kramer says J and E, he means God's two identities as named in the Noah text. It is also worth noting that when Kramer genders God, he writes it as S slash H-E. So you will hear me reading his writing as she slash he. To quote, in the J story of Noah, God wants to protect God's status vis-a-vis human beings and other creatures. It is in this story that the divine beings sleep with human women, provoking God's wrath. 
One expression of God's wrath is to limit the length of human life to 120 years, ensuring a clear distinction between humans and divine beings who live forever. It is in this story that God requires Noah to bring onto the ark seven of every pure animal, because it is in this story that God will demand animal sacrifices of Noah when he emerges from the ark. The God of the J story is appeased by the sweet smell of the sacrifices because they are an expression of human subservience and obedience. All told, this is a God who demands a clearly superior position with relation to God's creation, the supreme king to whom all creatures are radically subjects. The God of the E story is portrayed very differently. The sin that this God sees is human violence. Being concerned for human welfare, this God acts against that violence. But she, he, never limits the length of human life. This God requires no such radical division between God and humans. This God requires only two of each species, male and female, to board the ark because she, he, will not demand sacrifices. The animals are needed only to perpetuate their species. Instead of demanding sacrifices upon Noah's exit from the ark, the god of the E story begins by blessing the humans, then gives them laws. The most important of these laws is the one that protects human life. Crucially, the god of E then goes on at length to express God's covenantal pardon me, commitment to humanity, ensuring that flesh will never again be destroyed by a flood. The fact that this commitment is covenantal, the word covenant, appears in this context seven times, is significant. A covenant is a contract, one in which two parties commit to one another by mutual agreement. The fact that this God can enter a covenant with humanity means that she, he views humanity as a worthy partner, not necessarily an equal, but also not a radically submissive subject to the command, to be commanded and little more. These are two very different gods, one jealous and superior, the other caring and available for relationship. How could they have been put together? What is the meaning of the two when represented as one? The answer, I think, lies in our own need for different gods or, to be more correct, for one god differently imagined. End quote. That's really interesting. I wanted to include that specifically because nowadays... We have access to a text of the book of Genesis. And Mm -hmm. in the text that has survived, both of those gods are described together. And the story repeats itself a lot. Mm. I I included both the pairs and the seven count of animals so that you could kind of see that. Because usually lately when I've encountered stories that differ, they don't differ in the same telling of the story. They differ in different tellings. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a really important aspect of how this tale has survived. Yeah, I think it's survived. I've heard more retellings of 
the E version than the J version. I would like to examine this further. I do not know that this is a fact, but in my readings to find the version of Noah's Ark that I could tell, the E version of the God that is more concerned with human welfare and kind of makes the covenant seemed to be more prevalent in Christian tellings of Noah's Ark also. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of media surrounding Noah's Ark is Christian, I think that that's one of the reasons why it was more familiar to, sorry, not familiar, more easy, easier for me to find, more readily available on the internet. It wasn't until I specifically sought out the Jewish telling of Noah's Ark that I was really able to delve into that comparison. I highly recommend the article that I quoted from Kramer because he goes on to talk about how the lack of a printing press probably really influenced it. It was an oral tradition, and in oral traditions, there's often a lot of repetition. Yep. And that really excites me. I love the idea of the Genesis stories being told aloud because uh, I've only really ever encountered them in writing. So my personal favorite part of the Noah's Ark flood myth and actually global flood myths in general is how often scientific and historical communities have gotten involved in proving or disproving these stories as a real life possibility. Yes, I love documentaries that go over you know, have we found Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah? Have we found the Ark? Did, could the Ark story have really happened? Was there ever truly a great flood? I think, you know, and like the, the documentaries about finding the Dead Sea Scrolls and the history around them. I, I think all of that is so, so, so interesting. So please tell me more. Well, this is in some ways related to the idea of euhemerism. A word I have never heard before. <laughs> You know, I was really hoping you would say that. (laughs) It is not always that I get to introduce you to new words. So euhemerism is a way of exploring mythology based on the idea that mythological tellings grew from actual historical events or personages. The idea is that the actual accounts grew in the telling. They became exaggerated and altered to fit social mores. It's named for euhemerus a Greek writer from the 4th century BC. He claimed in his book, Sacred History, which now only survives in fragments, to have visited the island of Panchea and discovered that the Greek gods were kings and heroes who only became godlike in their stories. The problem with this way of studying mythology is its association with the idea that myths are primitive explanations of actual historical truths. Something that the tellers do because they can't manage any better with their limited understanding of the world. And I'm sure you can see how this has been weaponized in the past. For example, one might try to tear down the religious beliefs of a different culture by stripping its deities of their divine power. Right, and and claiming something to be primitive inherently, unfortunately, tends to imply that it's not well thought out, it's not articulate, it's not 
complex or based in any sort of actionable truth, when in reality it can be all of those things, but it's used to, like you said, weaponize. It can be. So the good news for us is that mythology, that is the study of myths, has evolved. And there is motivation to use important stories for exploring civilizations through science and fact-based research as a reason and tool for understanding the reality these storytellers faced that might have influenced the tales. By exploring the confluence of story and daily life in this way, we now have a positive tool for understanding what's important to one another rather than trying to separate one culture from the next. So now that I've just given you that long language lesson, (laughs) how does this relate to flood myths? I am... I am so glad you asked that question. I was wondering it. Listen, I keep prompting you with questions and then saying them on my own. This is how <laughs> this is how we're rolling. <laughs> okay, to start off, a planet-encompassing flood is inconsistent with the current findings of geology, stratigraphy, geophysics, physics, paleontology, biology, anthropology, and archaeology. It is also incongruous with the global distribution of species. Okay, so that's a lot of evidence. That's a that's a lot of branches of the scientific community coming together and going, one Earth flood happening all at the same time. We can't find evidence for it. But still, we know, we know for a fact in current time, we can see it on our news that people all over the world deal with flooding in their daily lives. So do we have to look at the planet as a whole? The flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh is regional and doesn't point to the idea of an entirely submerged planet. According to ABC, two scientists from Columbia University put forth the theory that once the Black Sea was freshwater... But was flooded by seawater from the Mediterranean. Oh, that's so interesting. I love it when you're as excited as I anticipate you being. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Anytime. Okay, this is so cool because, and this is the part that gets me really excited. In 2000, Robert Ballard, the underwater explorer you might recognize for his work, Discovering the sunken Titanic. I talk about him in my story, too. Oh, good. Okay. Robert Ballard, (laughs) the modern Indiana Jones of flood myths. The man, the myth, the legend. I actually read him being referred to as an underwater Indiana Jones, and I really like that imagery. I do, too. So, in 2000... Robert Ballard and his team found evidence that nearly 100,000 square miles of lands were flooded when the Black Sea was flooded by the Mediterranean 7,000 years ago. Note, if you can, that 7,000 years ago more or less corresponds with the timing of the Abrahamic flood universe. They found 
to quote an article from The Guardian by Tim Radford, a rectangular area up to 12 feet by 25 feet over which an ancient mud and wooden house had collapsed, and they found tools of highly polished stone together with fragments of ceramics. And where did they find that? In the Black Sea. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm about to go even further. No, hold your hold your excitement. Just bottle it, shake it like a soda can. Here we go. Jason Daly of Smithsonian Magazine reports that since 2015, the Maritime Archaeological Project expedition has uncovered 60 wrecks of ships covering... 2,500 years of maritime history within the Black Sea. That project, which began in 2015, hadn't even set out to find ships in the Black Sea when it started. Oh, my God. Okay, now you can release the soda can and be excited. Okay, thank you. That's so interesting. (laughs) So so they weren't even looking for ships, and they found 2,500 years worth of shipwrecks totaling. 60. They found 60 shipwrecks in the Black Sea. Yes. So people have been sailing it for 2,500 years, which means there's been water there for at least 2,500 years, but maybe not more than that. Oh, it's so interesting. So, yeah, we have some evidence that points to the idea that the shoreline has changed mm-hmm. and that people lived closer along the shoreline, which, you know, we can imagine that people might be more inclined to live along the shoreline if the water was drinkable mm-hmm. and fresh. We have all these ships, which are preserved in a particularly beautiful way because the Black Sea is so heavily salinized that I read parts of it have little to no oxygen. Yeah. Which means that the preservation of the ships is (laughs) B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Yeah, that's so interesting. Oh, that's so cool. I got to look up pictures of that after this. I have more archaeology for you. <gasps> you know, I love archaeology. Go on. I do, I do this for you, but also for me. The Darupanar site in Turkey is often used to specifically prove the possibility of Noah's Ark. There, a boat-shaped rock structure was exposed after earthquakes and storms in 1940. But pretty much since the 60s, this is a hotly debated site because geologists and some creationists actually doubt its validity. And they often cite the lack of petrified wood as a huge piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. To the contrary, at this time, it looks like that boat-shaped rock formation is entirely made of rock. Right. So probably not a boat. So probably not a boat, but frankly, very cool to look at and Mm. read about. Another site, actually on Mount Ararat in Turkey, is also used as evidence to prove a historical basis for the story of Noah's Ark. To quote the Christian Science Monitor, a Chinese-Turkish team from Noah's Ark Ministries International held a press conference in April pardon me, on April 25th, 2010 in Hong Kong to present their findings and say they were, quote, 99% sure that pieces of wood found at above 12,000 feet elevation and dated as 4,800 years old were from the biblical Noah's Ark. That is very sure. 99% certain. 
Yeah, so that same article from the Christian Science Monitor goes on to cite Dr. Price, and I'm quoting here, who is director of the Center for Judaic Studies at the Conservative Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. He was the archaeologist on the Chinese-led team in 2008 when this alleged discovery was first made. And in this article, Dr. Price says of the discovery, quote, if the world wants to think there, this is a wonderful discovery, that's fine. My problem is that in the end, proper analysis may show this to be a hoax. Oh, okay. So someone on the team says, yeah, believe it, believe it if you want, but it, if you really dig into it, it might not be true. They have reason to believe that either possibly both, the wooden structure that they found was a wooden structure for living, not Mm. for boating, or that the wood itself was planted there Mm. to be found. Mm -hmm. So I have turned this into an archaeology podcast. That's fine. I love it. And I refuse to be sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So whether or not people want to argue the archaeological facts of the possibility of a ship-based flood myth. My point is that it is so impossibly cool that story has become a source of exploration. Yeah. Often stories are a source of personal exploration because of shared human experience, interpretation, value systems. But flood myths are the perfect example of story inspiring the exploration of our actual wonderful planet. Yes, it's why I think they're so interesting and why I love trying to blend the stories we tell with the reality we can find around us. It's so interesting because it gives you a whole new view on how the story could have been, just like how we thought Troy was entirely fictional and then we found the city and that just throws everything into a new view. Yeah. I don't know what's wrong with my stumbling mouth today. I keep catching myself, but I am just so excited by the engagement that has surrounded this myth, this, this actually this whole mythology, you know, it's part of a specific pantheon that really captures the modern, the modern psyche in a cool way. I kind of need them to find more ships in the Black Sea right now so that I can continue (laughs) to read about it. But Yes. I just want to credit and thank you for the amount of work and dedication you put into this. I need you all to know how Uh. just how heartfelt she was in wanting to make sure that she was genuine and (laughs) thorough with this storytelling and making sure that it was fair and just digging as deep as possible into the research while knowing that she can't learn everything, but... I don't know. I'm just really Thanks. really grateful for the hard work you put in because it taught me a lot. If it teaches no one else anything, you've taught me a lot. Thank you. Yeah, I I really don't know very much detailed detail about Abrahamic religious stories, parables, mythologies, tales. I also went through... Oh, this is funny. Okay, so when I was in high school, I went to a Catholic wedding, and I mm-hmm. was very, very nervous because I had been told that Catholic weddings involve a lot of audience participation, let's say. And despite the fact that I love the theater, when I'm an audience member, I do not want to participate. And so 
I, you know, I'd resign myself. I don't know any of what you're supposed to say. So I was just going, okay, I'm going to sit, stand and kneel when I'm supposed to because I want to be respectful and do it right. And I was so stressed out and I was sitting at a time that people were kneeling and I was so stressed that I didn't notice. And my friend next to me kind of tapped me and pointed to kneeling. And I kneeled so fast <laughs> that my knees thunked on the ground. <laughs> and everyone in the church could hear it. And I didn't know that there were kneelers because oh, no. no one had told me. So for the entire wedding, I was just standing sitting kneeling on the ground and by the end of it because I'm so clumsy my knees were black and blue (laughs) did the person next to you not put the kneeler down I listen oh no (laughs) (laughs) I needed a crash course to have done it correctly but I I don't think I embarrassed anyone, and I only embarrassed myself privately. It it is uncomfortable when you feel like there's a lot of rules that you don't know how to follow. Well, I think that this is important to note. All of our examples of feeling as if we cannot appropriately fit in with the in-group of a practice are Mm Christian-based because we grew up in a specifically Christian town, in a specifically Christian country. Yep. And I will I will not say any more about it, but I guess that, that that is something that I learned a lot about when covering this myth. And I want to endeavor as much as I can when exploring the Abrahamic pantheon to make sure that when I am not intending to... I am not accidentally only covering the Christian telling because the Islamic tellings of some of these stories and the Jewish tellings of some of these stories are not the same as the Christian tellings of some of these stories. And I did not anticipate how hard it would be for me to sort it out because, A, I didn't have a basis of knowledge for knowing what I needed to sort out right (laughs) that it needed to be sorted out really at all when I started because of course there was this idea of judeo-christendom in my head that I have again as of mere hours ago learned is not it thank you Daphne for being an educator for both of us she's the best Actually, I'm sorry, I don't want to stop you from diving into your myth, but I am going to take a quick second to say Fathoms Deep is one of my favorite podcasts, actually independent of the fact that I personally know one of the podcasters, but they analyze Black Sails, the wonderful show, um, and they, over at that podcast, know how to talk about story in a more thoughtful, informed way than I have ever encountered, I think. Right. Yeah. Than I've ever thought myself. Please go check out Fathoms Deep. Really, really, really great storytelling. And if you haven't watched Black Sails yet, I'm going to highly recommend, even if you need to watch Black Sails again, watch it in companion with this podcast because it makes it so much better. They have interviews with the cast and the creators and it is it is a good time over at Fathom Steep. So, you know, while we're talking about flood myths, go check out Fathom's Deep. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more.
So we go from pirates to what's your story, Tracy? My story today is the story of Atlantis. And <laughs> very exciting topic, one that I was really, really excited to dive into. Um, and then I dove into it and poor Rowan got um, on her birthday just a wall of text from me whining and complaining because of how complicated it was to break down this story. So Be honest with me. Were you saying dove in specifically because of our flood theme? Oh, I wish I could say yes, but I wasn't. For shame. <laughs> but I dove into this story, and mm. while it's not a very complicated story and it's not a very difficult one to tell, the way that it's written out is fairly complicated. So unlike many ancient stories, we actually know the exact origin of the story of Atlantis. It was written in 360 BC, and it first appears in the Timaeus. Nearly 2,400 years ago, Athenian philosopher Plato wrote his dialogues Timaeus and Critias. Both are named respectively for their main characters. It's within these dialogues that we first learn about the lost city of Atlantis. Before we jump into the actual story of Atlantis and its famous downfall, I want to explain the way that Plato told these stories. These stories are told throughout a conversation between four characters. Hermocrates, Socrates, Timaeus of Locri, and Critias, who is the only one that actually mentions Atlantis. The dialogue takes place the day after Socrates described his ideal state. That description can be found in Plato's The Republic. However, in the Timaeus, Socrates feels that his description of the ideal state wasn't sufficient for the purposes of entertainment, and he asks his peers if they can tell a more entertaining story. Reading the actual Timaeus is not very easy. <laughs> and to prove it, <laughs> to prove it to you, Rowan, I am going to read three sentences. These are three sentences out of a very long paragraph that Socrates says in the early part of the Timaeus. This is to demonstrate how dense this material can get if you're not well-versed in philosophical debate and concepts, as well as reading translated ancient texts. Quote, I should like, before proceeding further, to tell you how I feel about the state which we have described. I might compare myself to a person who, on beholding beautiful animals, either created by the painter's art or, better still, alive but at rest, is seized with the desire of seeing them in motion or engaged in some struggle or conflict to which their forms appear suited. This is my feeling about the state which we have been describing. There are conflicts which all cities undergo, and I should like to hear someone tell of our own city carrying on a struggle against her neighbors, and how she went out to war in a becoming manner, and when at war, showed by the greatness of her action and the magnanimity of her words, apologies for butchering that word, in dealing with other cities, a result worthy of her training and education. That was three sentences that Socrates says in the early part of the Timaeus. So he compares a city, a well-created, well-run city to an animal. And when you're seeing it at rest, you can think it's beautiful. But when it goes out and does something that it's meant to do, it's really powerful. So all of that, those three sentences are Socrates asking someone to tell a story about Athenian greatness. 
because it's satisfying to hear about a well-run city-state. It, it's a lot, and it's heavy, and it's dense, and it's not really told in the most chronological order. And so that's where I struggled getting a narrative that I could tell about Atlantis. And I do think I got there, but it, it was a challenge. We both picked challenging stories this week in very different ways, very different challenges. We thought that this would be easier maybe because the versions of uh, myths that are child-friendly are so simple. And we were fools. We were. But I refuse to bore you and myself by reciting the entire story verbatim. And it also goes between two stories. So the Timaeus tees things up, and then the Critias is actually Critias telling that story. So we don't have time for that. So here's a quote from Wikipedia which sums up the Timaeus far better than I can. Quote, the Timaeus begins with an introduction followed by an account of the creations and structures of the universe and ancient civilizations. In the introduction, Socrates muses about the perfect society described in Plato's Republic and wonders if he and his guest might recollect a story which exemplifies such a society. Critias mentions a tale he considers to be historical that would make the perfect example, and he then follows up by describing Atlantis, as is recording in the Critias. With all that background out of the way, we can now jump into the story of the rise and fall of Atlantis, as told by Critias, who heard it from Solon, an Egyptian, told in the story of the Critias by Plato. It starts with a love story. Back in the old times, when Poseidon fell in love with Cleto, a mortal woman, he created a sanctuary for her on an island. He chose to create the sanctuary in a mountain and surrounded it with rings of water and land in order to keep her safe. She then went on to give birth to five pairs of male twins. The eldest, Atlas, was given the honor of becoming rightful king of the entire island and the ocean, which is now known as the Atlantic Ocean. The mountain of his birth and the surrounding area was deemed his fiefdom. His twin, Gadarius, was given the extremity of the island near the Pillars of Hercules. His other brothers were given rule over, quote, many men and a large territory. This island was created in the time of old when deities divided the land and each ruled over their own lot. And so it was that Poseidon was to rule over this large island, larger than ancient Libya and Asia, Asia Minor combined. This made Poseidon very happy. He named the island after his firstborn son, Atlas, and thus the island of Atlantis was born. The founders of Atlantis were said to be half man, half gods. Their home was made up of concentric islands, separated by wide moats and linked by a canal that penetrated right to the center. They made sure that the island was designed so ships could easily sail into the city and around the mountain. Each passage to the city was guarded by gates and towers, as well as red, white, and black walls that surrounded each ring of the city. These walls were then covered by brass, tin, and gold, respectively. All of this was to show how bountiful and rich in resources this island truly was. Some described it as a utopia, thousands of years before Thomas More would write his novel of the same name. There were exotic animals on the island that could be found nowhere else, and there was an abundance of food, water, and minerals. 9,000 years before Critias tells us his story, he claims that a war took place between those outside the Pillars of Hercules 
the Strait of Gibraltar, and those who lived in Atlantis. You see, over the years, the Atlanteans had grown from a small, utopian society to one that ran off of greed and slavery. They had conquered lands as far as Egypt and Tyrrhenia, which is around the Spain and Portugal area. They ruled over these people as their superiors in all regards. They had grown arrogant and aggressive and lost sight of all morals. And so it was that the Athenians led an alliance of resistors against Atlantis and their growing empire. The Athenians alone were able to destroy the empire and free the occupied lands from their tyranny. Poseidon could not allow the Atlanteans to continue, and as divine punishment, he destroyed them all in a single day and night. Quote, but afterwards there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune, all your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea. For which reason the sea in those parts is impassable and impenetrable, because there is a shoal of mud in the way, and this was caused by the subsidence of the island. And just like that, the empire of Atlantis disappeared forever from the earth, never to be seen again. The once perfect island was destroyed by its inhabitants' own hubris and greed. And that is the original story of Atlantis as told by Plato. There are many other versions that talk about Atlantis and many stories about it, but they all come from Plato's version. His is the first version of the story of Atlantis ever to be told, and anything that talks about it afterwards is referencing his story of Atlantis. I was really jealous when you picked this myth first because, well, let's be honest, we both love the 2001 animated film Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Very much. It's very good. I love Milo. He's my husband. Thank you. Yeah. So I was jealous, but now I am very grateful that you did it. <laughs> um, it was really interesting, but I will say, and I wrote this in all caps in our show notes, this story broke me. I truly didn't realize how hard it would be to pull apart the Timaeus and Critias into a single cohesive story about Atlantis. And creating a narrative out of all of it was a huge challenge because it kind of jumps all over the place, like I mentioned before. But it was also challenging because I got in my own head, since I know that there are philosophy, history, writing, you know, other majors out there that probably know it far better than I do. There are people who study this stuff for a living. And I wanted to honor the original text while making it palatable for a podcast format. The most important thing that I want to note about this story that I feel isn't very often represented when we just casually talk about Atlantis today is that Atlantis was meant to be the enemy in the story, and it's a story about Athenian greatness. Atlantis is not the utopian society that was beset by unfortunate tragedy the way that we sometimes describe it to be today. Instead, Atlantis was meant to be the exact opposite of that. It was meant to represent what happens when you don't follow Plato's ideals and his thoughts on perfect societies, which was kind of surprising to me when I really fully dug into the story. I didn't realize that the story of Atlantis was really supposed to be a story about Athenian greatness and kind of a morality tale. Yeah, it's interesting because I also... And uh, I'm still working it out, but I didn't get a sense that they had committed 
more atrocities than any other nation state at the time? No, I don't think so, except that it's explaining that Athens didn't do that. And it's really kind of a Plato bragging about Athens and what it looks like to see a perfect city-state go up against one that is morally corrupt. So in retellings of the story, Atlantis has actually sort of embodied Athens from the original. No. I mean, yeah, actually, yes. Yes, sorry. Yeah. It's a combination of Athens and the original in the sense that it's a, a perfect society from Plato's perspective, but it also takes on that utopian nature. I think before I really dug into this, I would have told you that the story of Atlantis was about this amazing society that was, you know, in my head, technologically advanced and really wonderful. And it was just unfortunately destroyed. I wish that I had the artistic skill to create the World War One style propaganda posters that I feel should accompany this <laughs> story. It's a, you know, it's a, it's basically a propaganda story about how awesome Athens is. Yeah, it's it's Plato's kind of allegory, his allegorical tale of why Athens is great, um, as told by Critias when Socrates asked, and he heard it from Solomon in the story of the Timaeus. <laughs> so the next question to answer is, was Atlantis real? Tracy, was Atlantis real? I'm so glad you asked. So according to National Geographic, our good, good friend, Robert Ballard, who is famous for discovering the Titanic and also um, 60 ships in the Black Sea. And Bismarck. I did not catch that. <laughs> and the sunken ship, the Bismarck. And the sunken ship, the Bismarck. So he notes that about 3,600 years ago, a massive volcanic eruption devastated the island of Santorini in the Aegean Sea near Greece. At the time, the highly advanced society of Minoans lived on Santorini, the Minoan civilization disappeared suddenly at about the same time as the volcanic eruption. But Ballard doesn't think Santorini was Atlantis because the time of the eruption on the island doesn't coincide with when Plato said Atlantis was destroyed. However, even Aristotle, Plato's teacher, believed Atlantis to be fictional, and it was created by Plato in order to teach philosophy. I, too am of the belief that Atlantis never really existed and is instead an allegory about hubris created by Plato. I believe this for a few reasons. One, aside from the logographer Hellenicus of Lesbos, who wrote something called Atlantis that seems to just be a genealogical chart of Atlas's daughters, aside from him, no one wrote about Atlantis existing. No one mentioned it until after Plato told the story. Plato was very clear about the location of Atlantis in his description of the text, and yet no evidence of it has been found. If an island such as this existed, and even the Egyptians knew about it, wouldn't some evidence of it exist elsewhere, especially since their standard of living seemed to be so high and they conquered so much land? With all of that, we still claim that Maybe Atlantis was in the Aegean Sea, the Atlantic Ocean, in the Caribbean. Some people think it was just above Antarctica. Even though Plato was very clear in his description about the location. So, to quote an article by Live Science, 
The only way to make a mystery out of Atlantis and to assume that it was once a real place is to ignore its obvious origins as a moral fable and to change the detail of Plato's story. But all of that to say, what do I know? We thought Troy was fictional until we found it, so maybe we will discover the lost island of Atlantis someday and people still continue to hunt for it. And to be fair, there is so much to unpack about this story, its subsequent stories, the ancient geography, the 16th century New World theories, modern translations, modern geography, locational debates, and historical interpretation to even begin to fully dive into the real discussion about Atlantis, especially on this podcast with limited time. So finally, to quote Charles Orser, a New York State Museum curator of history, pick a spot on the map and someone has said that Atlantis was there. I feel this story works much better as an allegory for hubris and the dangers of allowing a civilization to prioritize greed and power over morales than it does as a historical text. Those are my rambling thoughts on Atlantis. Rowan, what do you think? I... I want to be a schmuck and just say that Atlantis exists to be disagreeable, but (laughs) I'm with you on this one. I would very much like for it to exist just as I would like someone to say, we discovered the Loch Ness Monster or we have scientific proof that yetis are real because that would just be fun. It would just be so fun. But you're probably right. I mean, not you. You and everyone. You're all probably right. I, I think we should dig more into the, the story about the Minoan civilization suddenly disappearing. I mean, that is essentially a very similar tale to Atlantis. Why isn't that as interesting as the story of Atlantis in our minds? Why don't we dig into that? That really happened. And we can explore it, but we're more interested in the idea of Atlantis because I think not finding it lets us put so much onto it and continue to build it up in our minds. Well, the story of Atlantis has been... Hollywoodified in that it is a story. It gets all the juicy, fun details that stories can get versus from what you've told me, it seems that that this reality of the Minoan civilization doesn't have all that Mm -hmm. sink your teeth into it fun, if you'll pardon me for saying so. No, absolutely. Um, And I didn't even, even broach the topic of Atlantis in modern media. It was really robust and this podcast is already long as it is and I didn't think we needed to dive into all of that but it's very very popular. Speaking of Atlantis in modern media when the Atlantis cartoon came out in 2001 I taught myself to write in the Atlantean language that they came up with for the movie and then published in some kids magazine that's so cool do you remember any of it i only remember the letter a which is a swirl okay that's something so i you know it captures the modern imagination because a the ocean is scary it is and b how cool would it be how cool would it be every time we find evidence of civilizations under the sea it is always a particularly satisfying discovery. Mm-hmm. So an entire utopian nation state would be extra fun. It would be extra fun, um, especially because it seems like it was so advanced and so there were so many things on that island aside from just the people to explore. But unfortunately, it might have just been created in Plato's head. 
Which is also cool. It's still a lovely story, even if it's not true. Very true. So our next episode is going to be about wrath. Yes, which ties in very well with flood myths. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to reference it. There's a lot of wrath going on in our flood myths. I like exploring flood myths because I fundamentally really enjoy stories about gods that are neither all perfect nor all loving. Mm -hmm. That's just my own personal taste in story. So getting to go from the primordial beginnings in water to the violent death of water is a really interesting journey. It's it's a very it's a very circular journey that just ties in with that connection to nature of how so many things in nature can be both life-giving and life-taking. You know, I don't know how many people have a deep deep emotional and religious connection to Plato and his Timaeus and Critias. I'm sure there are many people out there who love those stories, but it's not quite the same as talking about something that people hold in their day-to-day religion. So it's 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 a week that, that was challenging for us. Which, friendly mo- reminder, we are a podcast that talks about story. Mm-hmm. And we do not confirm or deny or have any particular feelings about any religion, but we are very excited to learn about the stories from all of them all around the world. Couldn't have said it better myself. I could have said it better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I definitely couldn't have said it better. (laughs) Hey, Tracy. Hey, Rowan. Yeah. Tell me something good. All right. So my something good this week is that myself and my good, good friend, Tim, who is also my sister's boyfriend, we have started fencing together. He fenced all through college, uh, and so he's got a lot of knowledge on it. And with being in quarantine, I still get to see him and my sister because she works for my house. So I see her every day. So they live together. We're all sharing germs, the three of us. They're part of your quarantine pod. Exactly. We're, quote, unquote, quarantining together in our own homes. But all that to say, I um, got a saber because he knows saber. So I know most people start with foil. But since I can't go to a fencing academy, I'm having Tim teach me, and he knows Sabre. And we have done it twice now. We've had two sessions, and we're trying to do it weekly, where he comes over and hangs out in my empty basement, and we practice fencing. And it is the best stress reliever to get to just poke at someone with a sword while still thinking about how you have to do it in the right way. So it, it occupies your mind. And it makes you squat for an hour because you have to squat while you fence and you get to whack at someone. So 10 out of 10. I am familiar with some of those techniques from studying stage combat in college and using it still to this day in the theater. So that sounds fun. And I'm going to need to insert myself into that fun next time (laughs) I see you. Absolutely. Yes, please do it. So that's my something good. Rowan, tell me something good. Well... Two days ago, it was my birthday. Sure was. I'm not a super birthday-centric human being, but I will say that I did a very fun thing, or rather, a fun thing was thrust upon me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tyler, my boyfriend, and Kaylee, my best friend, surprised me, and we went to see a drive-in double feature. And Tyler and I were in one car, and Kaylee was, you know, quarantined in her own car, and we pulled up next to each other 
10 feet apart in the drive-thru. And we watched a double feature that was Knives Out and The Hunt. And it was just delightful. And I have not been to a drive-in since I was a child. And it was so nice to be out of the house. Yeah. And we actually had to drive a ways to get there, which was really fun. And everyone at the drive-in was so good about social distancing. Good. So it was just really good, wholesome fun. (laughs) And it's nice to be surprised. Also, speaking of birthdays, (laughs) Tracy just sent me a guillotine for a plant. And this is important information because I don't own a plant. Not one, not one plant. (laughs) You don't own a plant yet. Right. I don't own a plant yet. So in theory, there's a mystery plant wilting in the mail somewhere in Los Angeles. That should have arrived a few days ago. I'm going to love it when it gets to me. I just got a humidifier, so I'll just put it in the little... Good. The type of plant I sent you likes humidity. Oh my God. What is going on? (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Yeah, it's a guillotine plant holder and it just it felt right for Rowan you get me so (laughs) I was talking to Tyler about our agreement that in 200 followers we get to have whiskey Uh uh-huh and I had never heard of this whiskey and he just was like oh yeah facts about the whiskey I was so annoyed (laughs) I mean did he have good things to say about it I truly, I don't know. The second he knew about it and had facts, I was just frustrated that I wasn't clued into the facts sooner or I didn't know. In a totally irrational way, I was grumpy. And he is excited because since we live far apart, we can't have the same bottle of whiskey. And I never have finished a bottle of any alcohol in my whole life. So he's very excited that our benefits him. (laughs) All this is to say, Tracy, at what point do we get the extra fancy whiskey? We never established that. Oh. Tracy, you you spooky ghost angel, please (laughs) work with me on this. Never stop calling me spooky ghost angel. Oh my god, that's my favorite nickname I've ever gotten. Okay, well, Tracy, spooky ghost angel, light of my life. Mm -hmm. Work with me on this. Um, it's just that it's $300 and getting two bottles. No, we can only get one of that one, and I'll just visit. visit. Oh, should we go with number of episodes that we've been able to record or number Ooh, of people we've been do able the to thing. get? I like number of episodes. All right. When we've recorded 30 episodes, is that reasonable? I respect the math on that. And as we are already five episodes in, I feel that this is easily accomplished. We're going to get the fancy whiskey before we ever get the non-fancy whiskey, aren't we? Yes, we are. (laughs) Because we're very tenacious, but that does not mean... We have to get the non-fancy whiskey first. So if if we get to 30 episodes and we don't have 200 listeners, we're going to sadly drink the cheap whiskey. What if we get to 100 episodes and then we get the fancy whiskey? Yeah, absolutely. If we we get to 100 episodes and we still don't have 200 followers, we're going to get two bottles of the fancy whiskey. (laughs) What has this become? A whiskey podcast. Hi, thanks so much for coming to Whiskey and Fable, a whiskey podcast. Oh, oh, <laughs> copyright it. Copyright it right now. 
You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, stories grow in the telling. So if you like what we're doing, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Twitter and Instagram to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening source. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.